read the first six verses as we start off. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my redeemer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. The cords of death encompassed me, the torrents of destruction assailed me, the cords of Sheol entangled me, the snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. For his temp- from his temple, he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. Do you guys have any enemies? I mean, maybe even just like hearing this, you kind of start to think about maybe like your boss is a jerk. Or maybe it's a professor that you don't like that doesn't seem to work with the way they grade their papers and the things that you're trying to accomplish. Maybe it's, maybe it's someone else that you know in your life. Maybe you have some real enemies, some people that have hurt you. Do you have any enemies? Maybe it's not like that, right? We have this like adversarial culture where like anybody that's against us, anybody that not like opposed to us, but like thinks differently than us. Anybody that's on the other team, anybody that's on the other side, they become an enemy. It's like ingrained in us. Just for example, a couple of years ago, uh, my wife and I moved into a new house and I met my mortal enemy. I'm not kidding. Like it just like, I think about it way too often still. Um, and, but we were sitting on the couch this one night, a couple weeks after we moved in, and I started to hear this like little sound. It's like this like, like I can't make the sound, right? But this little like chirping sound, and, and it was driving me nuts. We were trying to watch something, and, and Lauren, like it just doesn't distract her from anything. I don't know, she's just focused on whatever. And, uh, but it's just like getting, like it can hear it, and I could just bother me. And, and so I stand up, and I turn on like the light to the kitchen, and in the middle of the kitchen floor, there's this cricket. And so I get up, right? I, I take my shoe and I smack that cricket. And, it, and all right, I clean it up and I throw it away and it's done. I go and sit back down. A couple of days later, I hear that sound again. Right? Like I hear that sound over and over again and it's just driving me nuts. So I have to get up, I have to find it again. Like, and and I, I, like we clean our house. It's not like the plague of like Egypt right here, but like these crickets just keep coming back and, and it got a little crazy. So just to like confess, it got a little crazy. So here's what happened. This, this cricket, I found this cricket, but then I get rid of that cricket. And then a few days later, it comes, there's another one. Like it just, they make these noises. And I start like, it starts driving me a little bit crazy. Like we got a puppy, this golden retriever, and he, we were taking him out. I was taking him out for like a little walk. And I realized like there was a cricket outside and he like jumped at it. So I like trained this dog that if he saw a cricket inside, he would like pounce on crickets. Like have you ever seen a dog pounce on a cricket? But he does it, right? And, and then it continues like, you know, another cricket, like a few weeks later, and it just drives me nuts. And I have to, like multiple times, Lauren fell asleep on the couch watching something. And then she wakes up at like midnight and everything in the kitchen, like the stove, the refrigerators pulled out of the walls. Like I'm opening cabinets. I'm trying to find this like next cricket that's making this sound. I had to destroy it. (laughs) It's my my enemies. (laughs) Like the reality is right, from really serious circumstances in our lives, from, from people and, and, circ- and situations that we've been harmed, that we've been hurt, to, to every little thing in our lives becomes an enemy to us. Right? There's something about us, like we, we divide and we continue to, to be, feel like they're attacking us. Like I, I felt personally attacked by these crickets in my house. They were invading my house, my space. They were annoying me. I had to eliminate them. That's the world that we live in. There's something about the culture that we live in, or, or maybe it's just there's something wrong with us as human beings. Like there's this adversaries that we're trying to face constantly. 
the author of this psalm is, is David. And he knew enemies. He knew enemies well. In fact, David was the king of Israel and he was known for his military prowess. So even if you like, like watch the history channel, they're not gonna talk about David as like a God after man's own heart. They're not gonna talk about David as like how he ruled. They're gonna talk about how he figured out certain tactics to defeat enemies that had much larger armies, much more powerful armies, uh, how he conquered countries that were trying to invade and he defended Israel because he was known for his military success. He knew what it was like to have enemies coming at him from all directions and he knew what it meant to defend against them. So we get this Psalm at the end of David's life and he's reflecting on all of this, the seasons of, of war, of battle, of, of adversaries coming to take him and to take over. And he begins to, to think about these things and he writes this psalm, reflecting on how he was victorious. But it helps us to remember who, who David was. He didn't start as the king of Israel. He started as a shepherd boy. Right, out in the fields, taking care of the sheep, making sure they had enough water, making sure they had fresh grass to eat, taking them from, from field to field. And in the midst of that, God had, had anointed a king of Israel. His name was Saul. But Saul really wasn't a very good king. Saul started to become selfish and self-centered. He wasn't ruling his people the way that he was supposed to rule them, and he wasn't leading them to God like they were supposed to be led. Saul was was thinking about his own glory. He was thinking about his own kingdom. He was thinking about his own joy, his own pleasure, his own whatever he wanted in life. So God had had removed his blessing on Saul. And he told Samuel, a prophet, there'd be a new king. And that king was David, this boy in the field tending to sheep. Saul anointed him when he was a teenager, or excuse me, Samuel anointed him when he was a teenager. Anointed literally means pouring oil on his head, but it's a symbol that God has chosen you for something. Maybe it's a king, maybe it's a prophet, maybe it's a priest, but it's setting David apart for something in the future that God's preparing him for. And we begin to see that as you hear the stories of what David was like as a teenager. So after being anointed, we get the story of David and Goliath. You guys know that story? Yeah. Right, maybe, maybe you've heard that and, and you get this story that, that David goes and he's taking food to his brothers who are in battle. So they're literally standing uh, you know, so many yards or so many feet away from the opposing army. And they have their camp and, and the other side has their camp and, and they're shaking in their boots or their sandals, whatever they wore. Like, right, right, they're scared because Goliath is like taller than Michael. And by the way, do you know like how crazy it is that Michael has pants that he can roll? Like he's like 6'5 or something. That's crazy. Anyway, um, so he's as tall as a giant and he's strong and he's got this reputation of being this military like soldier of soldiers. And everybody in Israel, all of these warriors, all of these, these soldiers are scared. Even Saul, the great king who should be leading his people is sitting in the back, eating food and drinking wine and just waiting for the battle to start in some other fashion. He's not leading. He's not going out and defending Israel. But then you have David who hears this. Remember, this is a, this is a kid who brought some bread and cheese or whatever to his brothers at the front lines. He's not even old enough to be out there serving in the military yet himself. He's normally just tending to the sheep. But God has anointed him, someone who who has the heart of a king of Israel that God wants to have. And so he stands there and he's he's listening to this and and his brothers get annoyed because he starts like reacting like, who does this guy think he is? 
right? David hears Goliath coming out and he's taunting Israel like, like who would challenge me? Who would like to fight me? I'll take on anybody. And if I win, then we win. And if you win, then we'll give up. It's a one-on-one challenge. Nobody wants it. But David, David gets confused. And David's a little frustrated and even angry maybe because he starts to challenge just to the people around him, right? And David's got like a little brother. Like he's sort of like, who does this guy think he is? Who does Goliath think he is? And his older brother's like, shut up, shut up, shh, shh, shh. But David says this crazy thing. He doesn't say like, oh, like I am so strong. Because he's not. I am so big. This, Goliath is a giant. David's not so big. Right? I am so experienced in battle. David hasn't had any battles. What he says is, who does this uncircumcised Philistine think that he is to challenge the God of Israel? Who does this guy who worships idols, who worships these other gods, think he is to challenge our God? And David goes out and he has a slingshot, right? He can't sword fight this guy. He goes out with a slingshot and he takes a rock and he takes out Goliath. And then he chops off his head, which is not a part of the story we usually talk about with little kids. But Saul sees that. As a king of Israel, he sees that. And he invites him in. Now what happens is something crazy is that God removed his blessing from Saul and gives it to David to be the future king. But Saul isn't removed as king. God had anointed him. God had a plan and he continued to work out that plan. And one of those things that happens is that Saul gets this spirit, this this evil spirit that just troubles him and and causes him pain and and anguish and frustration and anger and, and all these things. And what David can do now, David becomes a worship leader like Kyle and he plays music. And that brings peace to Saul. So whenever this spirit troubles him, Saul calls David and says, come, come, play. That's where we get so many of these psalms this week. And next week, we're going to be talking about psalms of David because he's a musician. He's a poet. He's writing these things for us to learn how to worship. And we begin to see this in his own life. He's the the shepherd boy who was probably sitting around praying to God and looking at the stars and wondering about who created all of this. And, And then the shepherd boy who was challenged by Goliath and stood up not in his own strength, but in the strength of God. And, and then facing an evil spirit of the king of Israel, he, he soothes him with the music and worship of the Lord. And it continues on because eventually Saul's got so bad that he starts to take David. He wants to take his life. He starts to chase him, literally. And there's these stories in First, and Second, in First Samuel where Saul is, is chasing David, trying to kill him. And, and David has, has grown up. He's become a soldier. He's started to show his military prowess and some other men have started to follow him. And he's got this unit where he's successful in battle. These mighty men of David. And Saul starts to see, oh, David is, is the one that's going to succeed me. He's the one that's going to be the king. But I've got a son and I want him to be king. I want to be king. So Saul starts to chase him, to take his life. And even then, David won't just fight Saul. He runs away, tries to, tries to resolve it peacefully. He won't just go, and, and Saul is getting old, and David is in his prime. Like, this is an opportunity for David to show his strength, to show his power, to show that he is the rightful king, and that he can prove it to everybody around him. But that's not what he does, because Saul is God's anointed one. Saul is the one that God made king, and so he must wait for his own time, for his own presence. 
for God to come and, and bring him to power, not to take it by his own force. This is the life of David. And then when he is risen to king, well, now he's got nations around him who know it's him. He's got a reputation that's been growing and he's got Canaanites and Philistines and many others coming to attack him, to take their land, to take their resources, to take their people and bring them into slavery, to turn their culture on on its head and to become just continuing and grow, right? That's what we see throughout history. Nations want to build empires, want to continue to grow and, and expand. And David, as king, has to both defend against that, to, to bring land back into his, his people, to, to rescue his people. He knows what it means to have enemies. Throughout his life, he's had to face these enemies. And so certainly, after all of that, he would be able to, to proclaim in a psalm, look how amazing I am. Look at how wonderful your king is. Right? From the time I was a child, God raised me up to be your leader and look at how successful I've been. I defeated Goliath, I overcame Saul and I have conquered my enemies and the nations around us. Certainly I am a king to be remembered forever. And then we get to this Psalm at the end of David's life and he, pre- he preaches really, I'm gonna read verses one through six again, just as it reminds us, he doesn't start with how great he is. He starts with this, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. The cords of death encompass me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. From his temple, he heard my voice and my cry to him reached his ears. David was known for his military prowess. He was known for the way that he led Israel. But most importantly, he was known for the way that he tried to stay devoted to God. That was what led to his success. That was what helped him overcome. Because he may have been the king of Israel, but the Lord was the one that was in control. The Lord was behind his success. And so he continues in verse seven, it says this, then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth, glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. It's a vivid image of God that we don't usually think about. Right? This, is, this is an image of God that talks about darkness and, and trembling. And think about the storm maybe that you experienced a few nights ago, right? Lightning crashing and, and fire from the sky. These are also things that come later in this section. Like, like this is a description of God who, who instills fear in people. A description of God whose presence transforms the the earth almost as though the, the oceans would flee from him. That the seas are even afraid. That the mountains shake at the presence of this holy God. It's a picture of a God who is mighty, who is set apart, and that his very presence instills fear in everything around him. See, the reality is that the nations surrounding Israel, they had their own gods. 
They worshiped their own idols. They had their own forms of worship, their own sacrifices. They had their own temples and their own, their own statues and their own things. And it wasn't the God of Israel. It wasn't the one true God. This was, this was any number of other gods. And as they were as they were coming to battle, there was something bigger than just this civic or political unrest, something bigger than this economic disruption, something bigger. It was this, this battle between the gods of Canaan or the gods of the Philistines or the gods of some other tribe and the God of Israel. There was this cosmic battle that began to be formed and, and as they understood this and, and, and the Philistines, the Canaanites, they had their own problem. They had their own sin, their own greed, their own lust their own sacrifice, like child sacrifices. But Israel was supposed to be different. Egypt, all these other nations around, they, they worshiped a number of gods, right? The Greeks and the Romans, they worshiped a number of gods. They, they sought power wherever they thought they could find it. If you, if you need more crops, well, you could, you could take a sacrifice to this god. You could sleep with this temple prostitute. You could do this thing. You give, and, and maybe your crops will grow. Or maybe you'll finally have a child. Or maybe this will change in your life, right? Whatever source you can find. You need more money for security? Great. You need more power here? You just worship this god, this god of power. And maybe you'll get more more strength. You, you continue to seek after these idols and these other cultures, that, and Israel was supposed to be different. And so when these cultures quite literally would bring their armies, their soldiers to attack Israel, it was not only this physical battle, but there was a spiritual battle going on. There was this battle going on that, that would the God of Israel overcome the gods of all these other places? Would they find rescue and salvation, or would they be conquered by them? This was the culture clash. And remember, David, David was successful, so he could, he could proclaim his own success. But what we see here is that God is a mighty warrior who conquered his enemies. That God is the one who, who overcame. See, these battles, these battles were much bigger than just who had the biggest army, because David didn't. Who had the most experience? David's armies didn't. Who was the most powerful? It wasn't David. It wasn't Israel. But it also wasn't the Canaanites or the Philistines or any of their other enemies. These armies coming to conquer them, it was, it was God. It was the Lord. It was the one true God. These idolatrous religions, they weren't gonna bring them success. And as David remembered that, he was successful. He was delivered. Verse 16 says this. He sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me. For they were too, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. So you have this picture of David. Literally, he's giving this imagery of him sitting and waiting or, or being attacked. He, he feels the weight of the armies ensuing. He feels the weight of these battles raging. He, he's remembering all of these things in his life that have happened. He's remembering all of these enemies that have come to attack him. And he's remembering that his very life was at stake. What is he supposed to do? How is he going to get out of this? 
It's this picture, like, he says, he rescued me out of many waters. Like, have you guys ever been to the beach? Our youth group just went to the beach, right? And you go out, you walk out, and maybe there's some some waves that are coming. And it's exciting, it's fun. You you, you play in the waves. But maybe you get out a little bit too far. And the water's a little deeper. You can't really touch the bottom anymore. And those waves start to come. And and they just start to crash. And it's harder to, to like, catch your breath. You're trying to stay up. and, And you can't keep your head up anymore, so it starts to roll over you. And so you go under, and you come back up. And you go under, and you come back up. And the waves, maybe they come a little bit faster. They, they keep coming, right? And finally, you get, you get trapped in the wave now. And now you're tumbling under the water, and so you're trying to you know, swim. Finally, you get back to the... And you're trying to breathe. You just... You, you can't breathe. And, 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 you're trying, and you get back to the top, and you catch a breath, and you're back under again in the water, right? It's just this vision of our lives being at stake. It's this vision of David feeling overwhelmed by what's going on, overwhelmed by his enemies coming to attack him from every direction. How was he supposed to be successful? How was he supposed to be victorious? And he remembers God. And he cries out to God in the midst of his struggle. He cries out to God in the midst of his pain. He cries out to God in the midst of the battle because he recognizes that it's not his own strength that is going to bring him victory. That it is not him who's gonna overcome these armies, these soldiers, Goliath. It's not him. Only the Lord can do that. For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? David knew that he had to continue to seek strength from the one true God, the Lord that anointed him king, the Lord that protected him and preserved him, the Lord that gave him victory, the Lord that provided, the Lord that rescued Egypt or rescued Israel out of Egypt and brought them into this land in the first place. The one true God. Saul made the mistake of trying to take matters into his own hands and he was eventually removed as king, but not David. David knew he continued and continued and repented and had to go back and remind himself that God was the one in control, that God was his strength, that God was the one who would be victorious. What does this have to do with us? Most of us aren't soldiers. Most of us aren't kings. How do we reflect on the idea that, that maybe like our boss is a jerk or whatever people we might think of in our lives that are enemies? What does that mean to us? Ephesians 6, Paul's writing to this church in Ephesus and just a little bit about, uh, a little bit about Ephesus. Think of this Greco-Roman city with temples everywhere. Right? I, mean, I mean, think if there's a God you could name, they're gonna have a temple or an idol or something that people could go to and make offerings to and just try to seek some type of success or victory or whatever from that God. And so they have this church in Ephesus now that's worshiping Jesus. And, and Paul writes to them this in verse, uh, chapter six of the, it's the end of his letter. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Persecution for the early church was a real thing. It was a real thing for Paul to be in prison writing that letter at that time. It was a real thing for people to be dying in the name of Jesus just because they were worshiping a God that seemed different or worshiping a God that that wasn't a God that the culture already embraced. They were worshiping a God that was trying to claim exclusivity, right? The one true God, the only God to be worshiped. 
And they were worshiping a God that was telling them that their culture was in sin, that they were rebelling against God. They didn't treat sex right. They didn't treat money right. They didn't treat people right. Persecution for the church was real. So when he's writing to this church in Ephesus, they feel that. They're experiencing that. He's writing to them from prison. And they care about him. They had a relationship with Paul. They loved him. He spent years with them planting this church and building it up. And then now he'd been in prison because of his faith, because of what he was preaching. But he doesn't write to them about the power of Rome. He doesn't write to them about the strength of the emperor. He doesn't even write to them about, hey, make sure you get as many swords as you can and make sure you build up as many shields as you can and make sure you start training your boys young. He's not, even, he's not worried about those things. What he says is you don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present age, over the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. When we think about us today, our enemies are not flesh and blood. Right? Like you can go on Instagram and be pissed off pretty quick, right? Like, like you can go on, maybe it's your aunt or maybe it's your cousin or maybe it's a friend or maybe it's someone you went to high school with you haven't talked to in 20 years, like whatever. Like you can be upset pretty quickly when you have them on a different political spectrum, right? They're on one side and you're on the other. It doesn't even matter what side. Did you see the, the disagreement, a tweet, a picture, a meme? It starts a spinning and they become our enemies, the neighbor who, whose music is too loud in the mornings or too loud late at night or who always parks a little bit into your driveway, like whatever it is, it just gets frustrating and, and angering. It, we live in this culture that looks for enemies wherever we go. And then let's be real, there's, there's lots of, of real enemies in this world. Right? Whether, whether it's military enemies and, and the complexities of those things related to terrorism and, and, and armies and, and also in our culture. There's people that, that pursue hatred and, and disdain and pain and suffering and struggle in order to get themselves success. And you may be the victim of that. You may be feeling that. Maybe you just feel the weight of that, right? You, you wake up with that, just like the weight of the world on your chest. But it doesn't stop there even, right? It's not just like looking out and it's, oh, it's that country, right? It, it's Russia or it's China or whatever, it's not even the people across the street because they have that color skin or, or because they, they're immigrants or because they're, they're really just from like the Midwest. Like who, who likes the Midwest? Like, right? it's, it's not that. I think a bunch of people are here from the Midwest if you're new, just so you know. Um, um, right? it, it's even like inside of us. We, we have this, this battle inside of us. We become our own worst enemies so often, right? We, start to, we look in the mirror and we hate what we see. We're ashamed, we're embarrassed, we're afraid, right? We could, we could get the new job and, and then, you know, really that job is great, but then they have this other job that I could get. Or maybe like Cheryl at work got that job and, and she gets a little bit more money now than I didn't really get the raise like, like that. So Cheryl's kind of like my enemy. Right? It just it rages inside of us. Where does that come from? Why do we have this world of such animosity and such fear and such anger and such frustration and, such, and just this hatred of ourselves, right? We're never good enough. We never feel like we have enough. We've never done enough or, or the things that we've done, we're ashamed of, we feel guilty about, we, we're in pain over, people have hurt us, they've done things to us and we can't forgive them because how dare they do those things to us? Why is this continuing to burn in our souls? 
I mean, as Christians even, right? We talk about, about the blood of Christ pouring over us. We talk about forgiveness coming to us. And yet there's this, there's this war that we're just tangled up in, right? These waves just keep crashing over us. It's because we're not wrestling with flesh and blood. Right? And I'm not, I'm not taking any responsibility away from, from people that might've actually hurt you. Right? They've made those decisions and they're, they're responsible for those decisions. But the way that we live in this world as though it is just physical things, it's just hands and feet and food and air. It's not the world that David lived in. And it's not the reality that Paul's writing about. And it's not the world that we actually exist in. Throughout scripture, there is this enemy. There is this adversary. There is an attack waiting and lurking. Throughout scripture, we see the devil, we see Satan. The word literally means enemy and adversary, but we don't really talk about that. I don't get up here and talk about how Satan has this power or Satan is doing anything in this world very often, right? Because it sounds kind of like the devil made me do it. I don't don't really have responsibility for those things. But if we read the scriptures and we study the Bible and we believe it talks about this God who is powerful and mighty and strong, who who is at battle with this enemy, and we say, well, the enemy is maybe like a metaphor, right? Genesis 3. In Genesis 3, we have this picture of Adam and Eve, and we talk about them and how they are the reason that all this is messed up. But there was an enemy that attacked them, a deceiver that came to them and said, hey, forget about God. You can be your own God. You can have your own power. You can have your own strength. You can be enough. But that's a lie. Because we weren't created to be enough. We were created to find enough in God. We bear his image. He loves us. He wants us to reflect on who he is. He wants us to know him. He wants us to know that he knows us. And yet we're under attack every day from a cosmic power, from an authority against all things in this world that wants to deceive and steal and kill. This isn't a psalm of lament. This isn't David looking back and saying, all the times I got defeated, all the times. This is a psalm of joy. This is a psalm of conquering. And the conquering that he experienced, the victory that he lived through was through God. And the hope that we have is to rest in God. This isn't something that we respond to with like, oh, I gotta do this more. I gotta, I gotta read my Bible more. I gotta pray more. First, it's to stop to pause and to rest in God because we have a defender. We have a God who hears our call. We have a God who sees us in the middle of this battle and has already won. Revelation 19 says this, then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. 
on his robe and on his thigh, he, is, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Jesus came to die on the cross, but he also rose. And in that resurrection, we have victory and the promise of him fighting our battles. I want you to pray. I want you to read your Bible. I want you to do things, but Jesus is our savior, our redeemer, and our defender. Let's pray. God, we praise you for the opportunity to gather and to worship. God, I ask that your spirit would move in our hearts this morning to remind us that you are defending us in the midst of attacks, whether that be a physical or spiritual, God, that you are our strength, you are our, our Lord. God, you are King of kings and Lord of lords. You are in control. Father, we praise you for that. God, you have given us the gift of your son, our savior, and we can turn to him and find rest and find peace and find victory, our rock and our redeemer.